have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, host of the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is an extra grog pod, which doesn't follow the usual format. In episode 49, I interviewed writer Marcus L. Rowland about his contributions to White Dwarf and Games Workshop in the 1980s. This extra features the bit where we talked about some of his more recent projects, most significantly his role-playing game, Forgotten Futures. If you're not aware of the game, it considers the versions of the world created with technology that fell by the wayside. Each generation has a vision of the future grounded in the technology of the present. In the 1980s, we imagined a future with cables and tape and household nuclear fusion. The 1990s saw the internet as a literal virtual space that we would inhabit via avatars. If you don't believe me, watch Disclosure with Michael Douglas and Demi Moore again. Forgotten Futures is the future imagined in the late Victorian and Edwardian periods, where there's no magic or superpowers, just ordinary people making sense of the weird and wonderful world of technology that they inhabit. Marcus tells the story of how the game has been distributed over the years and some of the adventures that can be found if you go to ForgottenFutures.com. Also in this extra, there's a self-indulgent monologue titled A Games Master Prepares. It's not meant as advice or best practice. It's me thinking aloud about preparation for a session. In previous extras, I've ruminated on the five-room dungeon for Blake 7 and kicked about convention prep ready for UK Games Expo 2019. In this one... I tackle the conundrum of Cthulhu in space to try and apply the Marcus L. Rowland formula, such as it is, to try and generate ideas as an approach to session generation. I'll be back at the end with some thank yous. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Marcus L. Rowland. So one of your real passions is science fiction, isn't it? And... Uh, Forgotten Futures is a set in that world for early science fiction. Forgotten Futures more or less happened by accident. I wrote uh, Canal Priest of Mars for, for, for GDW and they cut rather a lot of it out, which annoyed me a bit. So I thought, I, re- I really ought to start thinking about doing something like this in my own where I, I where I make make I make the decisions, but I didn't do anything for a while. Then I, around the same sort of time, Chaosium had asked me to write something for them. They wanted they wanted something about haunted houses, and I worked at it and worked at it. I could not make it work, so I did something which was apparently unheard of. I returned the advance they'd given me, oh which uh, <laughs> apparently apparently it was the first time anyone had voluntarily returned an advance. Um, so uh, I said I, at the time I said, "Hey, I've got this sort of idea. 
um, would you be interested in something based on Victorian science fiction and so forth? And they said, not really, which fair enough, you know, it's not their, it's not their cool thing. Right, sod it, I'll write my own. I'd, I'd done some stuff as share, shareware, shareware is almost forgotten now. Mm. Shareware was, share was the idea that you'd give software away and if people liked it, they would send you some money and then they'd get first, first dibs on a more complete version, the next release of the thing and so forth. So I thought, let's try doing a role-playing game like that. And the role-playing game was Forgotten Futures. The first one was based on uh, Kipling, Kipling wrote some quite good science fiction, late 19th, early 20th century. And the one I was particularly looking at was something called With the Nightmare, and the sequel as easy as ABC, which is basically an airship utopia. So I wrote uh, a fa fairly basic rules for that. Basically the two books, uh, the game system, um, one adventure, which was uh, about stopping someone accident more or less accidentally blowing up Coventry. Not quite sure why Coventry, that's the reason for it. There was the, basically the, the equivalent of a, of a big lighthouse at Coventry. And they were trying to fake, fake a terrorist organisation for various reasons. Uh, it, it, sorry, it, you, you'd, have to, you'd have, to, have to read the adventure, it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that. Um, I think the next one was uh, Karnaki the Ghost Finder. It was basic, basically tech, techno horror. The idea, the idea was... Uh, there was this guy called Harnaki. He was using the latest scientific methods to investigate the occult. These included uh, trying to record things on a phonograph, electric pentacles, stuff like that. So, yeah, mm. the, the next one I did was something called uh, The Log of the Astronef, which was about, uh, basically, there was a 1900s book called A Honeymoon in Space, which was originally published as... Uh, as several stories in Pearson's magazine around 1900. The hero and his, and his new bride and their faithful retainer go off on the, in, in the spaceship he's invented and explore the solar system. It was a nice, simple idea. And I thought, okay, you've got this technology around, what else is gonna happen with it? I wrote the adventure, the thing that there was a big, big chunk of stuff for designing spaceships. There were five adventures there. Forgotten Futures one was written to go on a 720, 720k floppy disk. Um, by Forgotten Futures two, I was using 1.44 megabyte disks. Luxury! And uh, <laughs> uh, it was still all just text files and uh, very small graphics, but it, I could get a lot more on. So Forgotten Futures two was uh, Forgotten Futures in Space. Forgotten Future 3 was the, the Professor Challenger one. Uh, Professor Challenger, Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World. Um, it had gone out of copyright at that point, although it later went back into copyright for a few years, which was really annoying. <laughs> um, but uh, fortu fortunately, I didn't have any problems with this estate. Of course, there were provisions in the law for that one. But number four was William Hope Hodgson and... Uh, Karnaki the Ghost Finder had to write some rules for dealing with ghosts and so forth, and, and some rules about rules about some fairly rudimentary rules about magic. 
Number five was about uh, disasters involving London. Um, I've had a lot of, of Victorian stories, early Edwardian stories, about uh, horrible things of one sort or another happening to London. You have things like the Thames Valley catastrophe, which was uh, London being eradicated by a volcano. There was uh, the River of Death, which was uh, pollution. So, so not pollution, bacteria. We got the, the invisible force, which was uh, the, which was gas mains leaking into the underground tunnels and the whole lot exploding, and, uh, and people getting electrocuted because there were cables lying in the street and so forth. Quite a lot of paranoia here. But anyway, I had all these ideas for strange disasters that could happen to London. So I came up with a, uh, a bridging mechanism for linking these worlds together using the using a, a gadget that made you, your mind go from one world to another. And that everybody was sort of aiming for a platonic idea, ideal of London. <laughs> and unfortunately, they kept ending up with worlds that were having disasters. And I did some adventures for, that, for, the, for this idea. I think the silly one was the giant lobster attacking London. <laughs> so, and uh, anyway, be that as it may. So that, that was the, the disaster thing, which was quite fun. Then one about Victorian melodrama and villainy. So basically the big adventure in that is a, is a, is a caper, caper movie, um, which starts off with, with the adventurers being, being blackmailed into uh, robbing, the, robbing the Victorian uh, Channel Tunnel and, st and stealing, uh, basically st stealing the, the treasures of Troy from, from one of the trains in the tunnel. Then they get double-crossed, of course. I think the villain in that one was quite good, in my opinion. <laughs> I, had a lot of fun, I had a lot of fun with that. And I had rules for being a melodramatic character, like asides to the audience and uh, bursting into song. <laughs> if, you know, you got, you got experience points for bursting into song, especially if, if, it, if you were if you were revealing some, something crucial to the plot, but the, the, the other players didn't know, but, but it was because it was an aside to the audience and so forth. And there was one adventure in there where everybody was, had to play at least two or three characters who were never on stage at the same time because they were all in a melodrama. That was quite fun. I think you do have a sense of uh, the melodrama because when I think of you know the history of your scenarios, they usually feature some spectacular. I mean, you've already mentioned uh, old ones in the Canary Wharf, thinking um, Queen Victoria and the Holy Grail. It's the post office tower, and uh, using these great landmarks to have uh, spectacular events seems to be a, a common feature. Yeah, um, I think people sort of expect that at some point in any adventure. There's going to be a, a set piece when something fairly, 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 fairly major happen. I, do, I have a tendency to, to like putting them at, at well-known landmark. You've got the whole of uh, space and time and everything to work with. Why not? Why not have fun with them? The distribution of Forgotten Futures is quite interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned about the shareware, but wasn't it given away in pamphlets with Arcane magazine and? Uh, yeah. They printed up the uh, rules as a standalone thing with a small adventure on it. And they did a very nice job of it too. That, that, that went out as a, as a freebie with Arcane magazine. I don't think they actually paid me for it, but it got me quite a lot of subscribers. Anyway, anyway I'm sorry, I've been going on about all the different 
Forgotten Futures England. There were actually there were actually eleven of them before I, I gave up on it. Um, um, I got I later got into things like a ch the children's fantasy one, which had magic in it. I did did one authorized thing, which was based on a novel by uh, Joe Walton called Tooth and Claw. Um, and in that one, the player characters are dragons. And oh, wow. so I I have rules in that one for for quite a lot of things. One of the things in there was that you actually got quite a lot of power by by cannibalism. So uh, there's a there's a chapter in there called Better Living Through Cannibalism. <laughs> and the last one I did was the one after that, which was Planets of Peril, which was, uh, that was a pure SF one from the, 90, the 1930s uh, when uh, Stanley Weinbaum's SF. Um, Stan, if you don't know him, Stanley Weinbaum was a very prolific uh, science fiction author of the 1930s, who unfortunately died very young. And while that's unfortunate for him and for his readers, it's very fortunate for me because it means he was out of copyright. Um, I've only, as, I said, as I said, I've done one licensing. Everything else I've done for Forgotten Futures was based on material that was out of copyright, which meant I could include it free of charge. Um, Weinbaum, as I say, did a ton of stuff that had spaceship plans, that had a load of stories, that had uh, five adventures and so forth. And it basically visited most of the worlds of the solar system. It sort of hung together, I think, reasonably well. So I was probably pleased with that. And then I was gonna do one based on a 1900 SF novel called The Struggle for Empire. Basically the, the British Empire in space, so to speak, except it was the Anglo-Saxon Empire. It didn't quite come together very well. Um, there, there, were, there were a lot of reasons for that. One of them was I was under the impression that it was a rather more important work than it turned out to be when I actually got hold of a copy. Mm. It, it's one of these books that's very difficult to find. And when I got hold of a copy, I was expecting it to be a, a, a huge blockbuster novel, and it's only about 100 pages long. It's also very badly written, and the characters made of cardboard. It's a dystopia. They don't make it clear. They don't make it clear because the main characters are having a, the main characters are sort of uh, rich and uh, living in high society. But when you read it carefully, it's all based on exploiting exploiting the peasants and uh, mm. colonialism and so forth. And there's this huge war going on. There's this huge war, war starts between Earth and Sirius, and so there's huge space battles and so forth. And I thought, yeah, I can do something like that. And I started writing it, and uh, I found it quite difficult to get enthusiastic about it. At some point in the early 21st century, which I have forgotten the date of, uh, a thing called Vatmos was introduced. Uh, Vatmos was the thing that killed shareware, at least in Europe. So if you sold any electronic publication or any, any, or any sort of digital thing, um, VAT had to be charged at the rate of the country in which the buyer lived in. What I was doing, which was previously well below the VAT threshold, suddenly I'd have to start keeping VAT records and register for VAT and so forth. Mm. Secondly, it meant that I had to chase up every buyer and get two proofs about which country they lived in so that I could prove I could prove that I was doing it. 
Thirdly, I then had to find out the VAT rate for every country that the person lived in and so forth. It was a huge farrago. It was a nonsense, but the government were, were quite insistent on it. I, I looked at this and I thought, no. Uh, so at that point, I decided I wasn't going to do shareware anymore. So basically, I contacted everybody who was currently a registered user and said, look, I'm not going to go, go on with this. Sorry, the, the law has changed. It's too complicated. And I offered the choice of a uh, £5 refund or I'd give the money to charity. And I think about, I think about 98% of people said, said, that, said they'd prefer to have prefer me to give the money, the money to charity, which was uh, very nice. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things about Forgotten Future from the outset was I was raising money from, for Cancer Research UK with it. Mm. And I forget the exact amount I made, made in the end. It was about eight or nine thousand pounds for them in the end. Mm. Like wow. um, and and it's, it's still in distribution though, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah, it. it's, all, it's all on my website www.forgottenfutures.co.uk it's all there it's all free if you like it please put some money in the tip tip jar to keep the website going because at the moment at the moment it's really not making any money what's going to happen is if people do start putting more money into the tip jar i'm going to keep i'm going to keep a percentage and give the rest to charity and once once i've got enough to to actually pay for the website and and things like domain name registration and so forth, I'm going to give the rest of it to charity. Because more more um, scientific romances are now coming out of copyright. So do you think that the project's over or are you inspired by new ones that are coming through? Honestly, I don't think I'm going to do, do any more. It's a lot of work. I think I've done enough variety of stuff that other people can sort of sit down and say, oh, look, this is a bit like that. We can run. We can run it using what the stuff Marcus wrote for that one. I feel. I feel like I've sort of said all I really want to say on that. To be honest, it's just there's a there's a point where you can. Yes, I could have gone on churning that indefinitely, but uh, I got tired. Let's just let's just let's just leave it at that. It's a lot easier now to get hold of the science fiction and romances um, because of ebooks and um, uh, that kind of distribution so it's good oh, it, yeah. yeah you know uh, any anyone can, can write and publish a role-playing game now there are some people who wonder why they're doing it but uh, <laughs> yeah I mean drive-through RPG and, and and the like have made it so easy to, 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 to become a, a, a published author now mm-hmm. but uh, it's trivially, trivially easy. Um, all, the only advice I can give anyone, find someone to do, do your proofreading. It's not always as good as it might be. My own included, I'm afraid. The, day, the days of it taking a year to get something into print are gone now. Mm. Um, basically, you write it, you make it look pretty, you convert it to a PDF. Um, if, you're really, if you're keen, you can come up with... Way, Design a, design a cover so that if people want to print, have the thing printed, they can do so, and farm it out to drive through, and they will handle your sales, sort out the printing of of, of bound, bound books for the people who want them, and so forth. Mm. Um, at the same time, it's meant that there are fewer huge op- few, few huge publishers, and mm. fewer opportunities to get in as a writer 
rather than as a person doing everything as a one-man band, which is mm. possibly not so good. I honestly don't know how people get into the hobby now because there don't seem to be games magazines in the same sense anymore. It, it can't be easy. Quite a lot more casual gamers. I think uh, a lot of people are coming through streaming, aren't they? And, um, you know, it's become a spectator sport uh, to some extent. Um, D&D. I've never, seen, I've never quite seen that, I'm afraid. If I'm going to be in the, the, playing the game, I either want to play it or be the person running it. Oh, yeah. Oh, look, he's, oh, look, he's running the dice again. Wow! <laughs> Sorry, it's not, it's just not for me. If you like listening to someone telling a story, I can sort of see it. But all the dithering that goes on when people are role-playing, I can't <laughs> see it being entertaining somehow. Sorry. Well, it's been really uh, great sharing your stories, uh, Marcus, and uh, it's been a real uh, privilege for me to spend some time with you. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me on. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. A games master prepares. Is it possible to achieve a sense of cosmic horror against the backdrop of the vastness of space? This is a question that we posed in episode 48 when we returned to Call of Cthulhu. I should at this point apologise to listeners who've made the reasonable suggestion that H.P. Lovecraft didn't have exclusivity on cosmic horror. They've also suggested that it's become somewhat tiresome that Cthulhu is the default mode for gamers. All the world looks like a nail when all you have is a hammer, and everything looks like a slime trail if all you have is a shoggoth. And there's a great weekly podcast from Ken and Robin that is perfectly able to slip a cigarette-paper-thin eldritch explanation for the sum of human history and beyond. You should go to that stuff before wasting your time here, and let's face it, I've no idea how an air fryer works. I'm not very sure what a kombucha actually is. Nevertheless, I am intrigued by this idea that it should be possible to create a Cthulhu in space scenario. So who better to turn to for cracking this conundrum than the man who put Dungeons and Dragons in space 40 years ago, Marcus Rowland. Is there such a thing as a Marcus Rowland method that could be adapted to recreate engaging, innovative and fun scenarios that he contributed to White Dwarf? And can that method be applied to this Cthulhu in space puzzle? A Marcus L. Rowland method. A-M-L-R-M. I shall refer to this as alarm, as it almost looks the same, but spelt wrong. Just to reframe the issue here, in case you missed it, Cthulhu in space seems to lack the necessary jeopardy. Sure, the great old ones are timeless. Humans travelling through space are just as likely to follow an investigation and discover a servant of Galaki tampering with the dilithium crystals as they are a serpent person mixing a Yiddish cocktails in a speakeasy. But somehow for gaming, it doesn't seem as satisfying. 
it's all too tempting to default to the cinematic conventions used in Event Horizon of the Alien franchise, which have a stylistic debt to Lovecraft, even if it's a superficial one. Lost, alone and vulnerable are the prerequisites for achieving the effects of Call of Cthulhu as sanity, resources, luck and competencies deplete as the scenario progresses. Sure, it's possible to recreate these effects in a far future setting, but the impact of a Shantak seems dwarfed when space and time are conquered by humanity. As a starting point, I took the alarm approach of looking around to find out what interested me to write about. Well, this year, there's been a revival of the nostalgia for space travel, thanks to billionaires propelling themselves briefly out of the Earth's atmosphere. Pete Waterman and Rod Stewart wanted to be train engine drivers, so spent their millions on model railways. Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson wanted to be astronauts, so spent their billions being shot from a rocket. Earlier in 2021, they got to live out their dream. Bezos in a rocket design that can only be described as in his own image. What if there's a more sinister motivation for their desire to conquer space? What do they know that we don't? Are the cultists preparing for some Cthuloid rapture? Is the rocket some kind of signal that they're projecting? Who or what has got to them and inspired this project? Yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada. There's a reason why these things write themselves. It's because they're boring. If you get enough armchair conspiracists with enough dark web forums and enough keyboards and they can compile enough reasons for the guardians of the new world order to want to colonise space while we're drones operating Earth like a giant battery cell to power the nefarious conspiracies. We're going to have to do better than that. So, what are the components of alarm? Doesn't really work, does it? Well, last time, Daily Dwarf identified elements of Marcus's contributions to White Dwarf with four headings. Investigation, spectacle, time travel and puns. When preparing a session, I'm going to take these four elements and use them to create four columns to help shape my ideas. Let's expand on them a bit to distinguish the components. Well, investigation, that's a method, isn't it? So this is a common design approach to scenarios. There's something going on. The investigators have to work out what it is and how it can be stopped if necessary. To be honest... I'm always tempted to bypass this and jump to the action. But I'm going to resist the urge. Spectacle. Well, this will determine the set pieces to help make sure that the locations are bold and interesting. Often, I will use this as an approach in my preparation. Try and think of the elements of a scene and get them clear in my head. The more spectacle, the more possibilities for the players to interact with the surroundings, the better. Time travel. Now this is a theme for the scenario, not something I would normally tamper with. So this will introduce a new area that I wouldn't normally put into a scenario. I understand that fake Cthulhu transports player characters into points of history to investigate Cthulhu incursions. 
Maybe there's something in that approach that I can adopt here. Finally, puns. Now, puns, I think, represent a tonal aspect. Marcus's work is characterised by its infusion of humour. You can see this in early Warhammer 2. Clever wordplay and callbacks to the real-world events and personalities. I prefer humour to emerge from play rather than baking it in, but I'm sure there'll be something that I can play with to encourage a more light-hearted tone. Mike Kuehl has reminded me that Marcus is also an accomplished fan-fiction writer. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Supergirl and the Marvel Universe have all appeared in his fan work. Or he answers questions like, John and Sarah are dead following a zombie apocalypse. What does the Terminator do next? Perhaps under this heading, I should list some NPCs or fictional or real characters who will make an appearance in the scenarios. So, Cthulhu in space, investigation as a method, it features spectacular locations for the action, has time travel involved as a theme, and has a light-hearted tone. Okay, this is what I've come up with on my whiteboard. Be gentle. Phalanx for the memories. So the investigators need to investigate the disappearance of Dick Brutus, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who has not concealed his desire to colonise the moon. He's revealed his ambitious scheme to send a flurry of 3D printer drones to land on the lunar surface to build a moon base remotely. Investigators have an association with Brutus and his research, so they need to conduct an investigation to find out where he's gone. They've not gone public yet, as they don't want to panic the market, but they have reason to believe that he's not been killed, he's just disappeared. A strong start could be the investigators arranging a meeting with Brutus, and he's not there. And they've got a chance to explore his ranch before the authorities begin to intervene and impose themselves onto the situation. Maybe strange men in black are already on the scene, or at least close at hand, if things get boring as they're rifling through his sock drawer. It turns out that his plans have been scuppered due to the intervention of the COP26, who have imposed restrictions on recreational space travel due to the impact on the environment. He has a secret project codenamed Phalanx, so-called because it involves the arrangement of strange cylinders, and there's a cabal of secret investors, including references to a hitman. Could it be an assassin? Or is it a record producer from Newton the Willows? Either way, in order to avoid the restrictions, they have constructed a time machine to take them back to the Apollo missions in the 1970s. The project seems fairly benign, following the instructions from his deceased father. A sort of time travel tourism. The investigators follow him back to 1970, where there's a preparation for the launch of Apollo 13. They use this one as they have a ready-made cover story that he didn't make it. Dick Brutus has taken his moon-based technology with him to plant on the lunar surface, ready to activate 50 years later. He needs their help to get the rocket and continue the programme that they've been working on. They need to find a way of preventing the official astronauts from getting on board so they can take their place. But they can't kill them 
They have to devise some manner of making them indisposed, using their IDs to get on board the rocket. Once they get to the moon, the drones are set to work. The sticky stuff is actually the tissue of Uber Sathler from Call of Cthulhu, and its spawn steadily grows, ready for a conflict. And why is he doing this? Well, his dad is on the ground control at Houston, preparing the Apollo missions. He's a sorcerer who's been operating a cult because, because yada, yada, yada. So, investigation. Find Dick Brutus, discover his plans and follow him. Spectacular locations. The fabulous Brutus Ranch. The epic, time-bending, weird science machine. The Kennedy Space Center. A rocket and the moon. And a big fight on the moon. Time travel, a tourist trip to the Apollo missions. Puns, well, I can see a load of fun emerging from the phalanx and I want to build in some light NPCs too. The Pete Waterman-inspired record producer, for example, and there's also fun to be had creating NPCs based on the Apollo 13 crew, only basing them as they appear in the fictionalised account in the Ron Howard film with Tom Hanks as Jim Lovell, it would be cool to have Ed Harris playing the Brutus's dad on the ground too. Sure, sure, it needs more work. They always do. Feel free to chip in as the idea percolates in my mind for the next few weeks. Time may be twisted completely out of shape by the end of it, but don't be alarmed. I'm just making scenarios the Marcus L. Rowland way. There once was a popular magazine Big on the role-playing gaming scene White Dwarf was his name But despite its name His games had met their foe Then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must take the leave and go And the next time was editor back in the day Till fighting fantasy lured him away Now let the girls are here to stay Brian made it so And oh, then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must make the leave and go Lord, then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome, they must take the leave and go 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 Brian was my moonrise Thanks to Marcus for speaking to us about his career in role-playing. You'll find Forgotten Futures online at ForgottenFutures.com. Download and drop him a donation there. Did you like the Grognard File Sea Shanty? Written on a tweet by Armchair Adventurer at Daily Dwarf and brought to life by the wonderful Lichway Ed Foster. Fantastic stuff. This podcast extra is an aperitif ahead of a bumper episode 50, which will be coming soon. It's all about fighting fantasy, and we are joined by none other than Ian Livingstone in the room of role-playing rambling. And the first lasting everything is from Mr Jim Moon from Hypnogoria, and Blythe and I are meeting to record face-to-face for the first time in a year and a half.
All that's left to say is thank you for supporting the Grognard Files by passing it on to anyone you think will listen. We have some new patrons to thank too. Welcome to Alex, Joe Doyle, Alexander Kelly and Simon Clancy. Thanks for your tips in the beret to keep this show on the road. At the higher levels, I'd like to pass on a virtual gift. Joining at the so far so good level of the armchair adventurers is Saps. So I'm going to roll on a virtual table from Marcus Rowland's Diana Warrior Princess. Ah, 12. You have a jetpack owned by the God of War, Landmines. Thank you, Sap. Boosting his tip this month is Kiha, also known as Clarky the Cruel. I know a number of you are currently engaged in his year-long project of world-building post-apocalyptic Tenerife. I'm part of a group located at the golf course who have a, a playing card-inspired caste system who have a first Earth Battalion approach to building a new world and preparing the population for the rapture, the appearance of aliens who are going to rescue us. It's not nearly as gonzo as it sounds, as it's played fairly straight using GURBS. You'll find out more in the next issue of the zine, which is due to be available for patrons before the end of the year. Thanks, Kiha. You have rolled... 22, which is a yellow plastic action figure in the shape of the poet Homer that disguises a radio transmitter and it was once owned by Elliot Ness. Hmm. Well, thank you all for listening. Look out soon for episode 50. Until then, adios, amigos. There once was a popular magazine Big on the role-playing gaming scene White Dwarf was its name, but despite its name Those games had met their For North and the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must take the leave and go And Lyric's done was editor back in the day Till fighting fantasy lured him away Now the figures are here to stay Brian made it so And Lord, then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome They must make the leave and go Lord, then the Anselman come Taking production to Nottingham Role-playing games are not welcome, they must take the leave and go 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 Brian was my room right